Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined, as always, by my three trusty co-hosts. We have Mr. Brendan Flaherty. How's it going, Brendan? I'm good, guys. How you doing? Uh, we got Mr. Mike Long. How you doing, Mike? Doing all right. I'm glad this last exam cycle's over, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're fo- finally reached the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, man. It's, it's a good yeah. feeling. Back to back. <laughs> it was a long one, for sure. And last but not least, Mr. Adam Shear. How you doing, Adam? Doing great, guys. I share Mike's sentiment, Jerry, your sentiment. Glad that we uh, have those two back-to-back cycles in the rear view, and... Uh, Congratulations go out to everyone that earned their marks this cycle. Yeah. Yeah, for real. It uh it was a definitely a tough cycle between COVID and election stress and Cap delays stone. and everything. Yeah, it's this was uh this was probably one of the most brutal exam cycles I've I've ever been a part of. Uh so yeah. even the CFP you know, board remote policy, I mean that that was no no ride in the park also. That was Yeah. Yeah, they were strict. I mean, we, we heard a couple of anecdotal things about people that, um, you know, really had a tough experience. Uh, yeah. That's, that's hard. To yeah. Hear. I mean, can you imagine maintaining your focus for that long? You, you were going to sit in either March or July and you get bumped and then you're not certain and all the rest of the stuff's going on. I mean, yeah. wow. That's, it's, it's an even yep. greater accomplishment for these folks that have passed in September and, and November. Yeah. And speaking of, I mean, I think, you know, people who did pass that, that's a huge feather in your cap. You know, you, you pass the CFP during one of the most difficult times, you know, and if you're one of the ones who weren't successful, I wouldn't beat yourself up too yeah. much because this is really extraordinary times. Um, but for those of you that did pass, you know, definitely pat yourselves on the back because this was uh, this was definitely a difficult time and then also just a difficult test cycle. It's almost as good as those of us that passed it when it was two days three separate yeah not quite as good (laughs) almost uh, what was that grandpa i couldn't quite hear it over the the sound of your teeth rattling (laughs) but yeah big accomplishment certainly a big accomplishment there was a very tough circumstances that people had had to kind of come through here and you know all the other distractions that are going on and and um you know so certainly great job definitely well now that the exam's out in the rearview window, there is also the election in the rearview window. It looks like we uh, we know the results now. Uh, Joe Biden is one, so we just kind of wanted to talk about you know what that means, uh, both as you know investment professionals and specifically as CFPs, uh, because you know we're probably going to see some changes in the next couple of years. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting to watch the uh, the market's reaction to, to what has occurred in the last week. And, um, you know, I, I think that we had initially seen the market kind of lift up as a result of uh, the, the thought that there was going to be a split power in Congress, uh, as we've had for the last several years. Um, but, you know, we'll see that, that that still is kind of up in the air as we do have uh, a runoff uh, in Georgia on January 5th, which could disrupt that slightly. Um, we have all of the protests of, of the election uh, results uh, in, in the various courts. Uh, gonna, they're going to play themselves out. So I think we'll see, you know, some fits and starts in the in the uh, the markets as, as we do see the uh, the final death knell of the election kind of play itself out. 
Yeah, I think this just really reinforces the whole idea that markets crave stability. And, you know, the markets were really volatile leading up to the election, really volatile every time some new big news broke. But, uh, you know, when the results became pretty clear and it seemed to be locked in that Joe Biden had won, uh, we did see markets, you know, have have a nice boost. And it really does just show that the markets don't necessarily always care who's president. They just care that we have figured out who the president is. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think especially in this one, it wasn't necessarily the presidential outcome that was most important. It's really the balance of power in the Senate um, or, or I'm sorry, in, in Congress. And I, I think that. Uh, Markets prefer split con- uh, split Congress. They they don't like mandate um, and and uh, because they they like they like stalemate. Yeah, you uh you sent us some really interesting statistics uh, before we started recording, Brendan. You wanna? I think that's a good segue to kind of go over those because you know these are some kind of interesting facts and figures you had here. Yeah, so uh, I, I was doing this for for a, a conference call that I was having with clients surrounding the uh, investment. I'm sorry, the election outcome. Uh, and I was actually surprised at the statistics uh, myself. So when we take a look at how markets uh, historically, and I've, I'm sure I've said it on, on, on these recordings in the past, is, is the, the impact of the presidential election uh, is, is typically dissipated in, in markets by the time the inauguration occurs. Um, and so, you know, there's certainly anomalies to that. But in general, uh, I would have thought that if we had a blue wave that that statistically would be bad for markets and that's not necessarily the case uh so we'll go through a few statistics here so the the first year uh, of a four-year term since 1977 so we have different uh benchmarks for the time frame for these for these statistics but so since 1977 when it was a republican president that was elected so the first year of a four-year term the average return on the S&P 500 was 12.3%. Uh, we had a high return of 32.2% and a low return of negative uh, 11.9%. For a Democratic administration, again, the first year of their four-year term, uh, we had an average return of 19%. So I was surprised it was so much higher. Um, and again, only going back to 1977. So there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of data that we're not capturing here, uh, but we had a high return, very similar to the Republican of, of 33.4 percent uh, and, and a low relatively uh, similar to the to the Republican, again, of negative 7.2. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, the highs and lows between Democrats and Republicans are pretty similar, um, you know, within a couple percentage there. But the average being so much higher for Democratic presidents. That, that is interesting that, you know, the highs and lows weren't far off, so it's not like they had massive outliers in one situation. Well, I mean, the, the one outlier, I think you could take a look at the Clinton administration specifically, uh, which was a Democratic administration during really the, the melt-up of markets during the dot-com era. Um, and, and so, again, given the, just the short time frame of the data, I, I think that that's probably more impactful. So maybe a little spurious, but uh, yeah, again, still uh, surprising results. So when we take a look at the statistics, so from 1950 to 2019, the average return of markets when we have a Republican president with the Republican uh, Congress, so a mandate which for, for Republicans, which we would assume would be lower taxes, less regulations, we have an average return of 10.7%. When we have a Republican president with a Democratic Congress, we have an average return of 7.5%. And when we have, going back to what we were just saying, that the markets prefer stalemate, 
uh, when we have a Republican president and a split Congress, we see returns of 17.6% uh, on average, so well above the other two. When we take a look at um, when we take a look at a Democratic president, again from 1950 to 2019, when we have a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress, it's actually higher than when we have Republican mandates. So that return is 14.3% on average. Uh, when we have a Democratic president with a Republican Congress, we have 18.5%, uh, and then a Democratic president with a split Congress, we have 16%. So uh, again, surprising results to me. Um, it, it seems that the, you know, historically the, the 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 balance of power that the markets seem to prefer would be a Democratic president with a Republican Congress, but that that has the highest average return of eighteen and a half percent. And that does seem like that's what we're going to be going into. You know, so we have Joe Biden, Democratic president, and then I know there's still some congressional seats up for debate as far as uh, when we're recording this podcast, but it does look like it's going to. It, at the very least, it's going to be split, and it seems like it's going to be leaning more towards a Republican Congress at this point. So, um, you know, it, it, I mean, statistics-wise, this is probably one of the best scenarios that uh, the market wants to see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's again, it's it's um, elections are always interesting. Uh, you know, change is always interesting for markets. You know, going back to what Jerry said, that markets prefer certainty versus uncertainty, and I think that um, it's going to take time. I, I think it'll likely take longer. Uh, for the uh, the election to be certified than it did in 2000 uh, with Gore and Bush, which took 43 days. This will probably take, you know, all of two months. Um, and uh, But it's going to be interesting to see what the market's reaction is. Yeah. Now let, let's bring it back around to, you know, us as CFPs. Probably the big thing on a lot of our minds is, you know, what laws are going to change and what are we going to have to relearn? Because... The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was such a massive change for the CFP curriculum and both, you know, how how CFPs run their practice and also how students are studying for the exam. Um, you know, Joe Biden's tax plan, which I've read through pretty uh, closely, you know, also has some major changes in store, uh, you know, if he's able to get it through Congress. And that's that's really the point. It really comes down to, again, what happens in Georgia uh, in January, which sounds like mm -hmm. it should be a movie. Um, <laughs> but but understanding like where is that balance of power really going to reside? Because if we get to the point where you don't really have the mandate in the House like we've had with Democrats, and you don't really have the mandate in the Senate like we have had with the Republicans, and they actually have to work together to get things done, particularly if we do have those two independents in in the Senate, um, it's going to require deal making. And and I think that's that's if if Biden does prevail, which it looks like he will. Um, you know, he's he's been known historically to be that deal maker where he's he's really kind of a moderate guy um, and has had a history of working with both sides of the aisle to get things done. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it definitely to, to your point, I, I think it really does call into question whether or not we're going to have to relearn a new tax code, what's going to happen to capital gains taxes. Um, and I think that um, it's probably less change if things play out like it looks like where we're going to have that split Congress uh, and probably more change if, if it doesn't play out that way and we have mandate. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't want to focus too much on on the tax plan because, you know, lots can still change and I'm sure it will change by the time it gets passed if it ever does get passed. But from what I've read, there's going to be major updates to tax law, to estate law, to investments, you know, pretty much every capital gains are definitely I I think. And and again, with all the stuff that we're with all the money that's getting poured into this from from a monetary policy and a fiscal policy standpoint, uh, and will likely continue to get pushed into this, those bills have to be paid at some point somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And all of the things you just mentioned are really easy places for them to go grab some money. Yep. So, you know, definitely be on the lookout. Uh, there could be some massive changes to the uh, the curriculum, both for students studying for the CFP and also just existing CFPs dealing with their clients. Lots to be on the lookout for that could really change, you know, how things are going to operate. You know, we might have to completely redo estate plans, completely redo, uh, you know, any long-term financial plans for clients. Uh, so it's definitely something you're going to want to keep on top of and, you know, be aware of what's coming in the pipeline. Yeah, I'd be curious, Mike, so you, you've seen a bunch of these, right? And, and you've been in practice for a lot of these transitions through through different administrations. What's been your experience with it? I pay no attention to any of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably the right thing. And how, yeah. And how many clients do you have now, Mike? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's yeah. all. The answer is always, well, it depends, and 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 never does it does it translate into, here's what's exactly going to happen. I don't believe yeah. anyone knows that. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many degrees and designations you have. You have no clue what's going to happen right. in this marketplace. I think the market's going to be the market, and it's. I think it's more about business cycles. And the economy than it is the the political affiliation of 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 the presidents, um, and I mean they tend to spend the first well you'd like to think year but I think really it ends up being more like four years simply trying to undo what the previous administration had done right and and the needle doesn't ever really get pushed too far on any of this campaign talk. In my plan, in yeah, my plan, point. in my plan, in my plan. We never get to, to the plan. We never really Yeah, how do. many times have we heard about infrastructure, right, over the last 20 years? Like, infrastructure is always a major thing that they promise, and it never gets done. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all about uh, grabbing votes and raising funds. And at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot of work that ever happens. And uh, so my view on it is very simplistic. Uh, I, I believe entirely in the market for the long run that you can do no better when you're talking about sitting on money for an extended period of time i believe the market will always win but i'm i don't believe that anyone knows a thing about the short run because there are too many variables it's just fun to talk about and argue about but when it gets right down to it I just don't think anybody really knows. I, I what's what's the economist that called it the random walk? I, I uh, Burton Melkiel or Eugene Fama, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, him too. Yeah, uh, um, Burton Melkiel wrote the random walk down Wall Street. That's what I believe. Uh, in, yeah. and I, I have joked a lot of years that if you listen to the pundits, the experts, and there's a lot of them now that have airspace. Um, Today, they will be explaining in excruciatingly minute detail exactly why what they had projected previously did not happen. 
Uh, it's yeah. always hindsight looking back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I can explain this because this, 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 yeah. this, this. Well, why didn't you tell me that ahead of time? <laughs> we right. Maybe would have made it well that's, because yeah. I didn't know because it depends. And that's the probably the yep. thing in all these years that I've learned and it drove me nuts in the early years that everything just always have that it depends. And I now realize that that was actually the truth. <laughs> it wasn't yep. a deflection. Uh, it wasn't a workaround yeah. on, a, on a direct question. It was because it really does depend. And those are the things we, we tend to not have control of. So I'm kind of a, I don't know what you would label me as other than old. <laughs> but I, I just say identify your long range money and invest it in the market. That's what I believe. Yeah, and that's it's a great point it really is because it, the, the you you shouldn't allow what you're seeing in the short term or the intermediate term really dictate your long-term plans or, or uh, it, your behavior towards your long-term plans yeah it, you had asked uh, last week or the week before uh, as you were coming across these great articles what what we thought how it how the market had done better depending on the election and and I said well I would guess Democratic um, and you said, really? And I said, yeah. And you said, well, that's that's right. But I need to share the how sophisticated my analysis was. Uh, and I'll break that down for you. In my life, in my savings and investing life, uh, which kind of coincides with the statistics that you show, the best stretches that I ever had with, with investing and retirement funds were under Bill Clinton first, Barack Obama second. I experienced the greatest growth. Um, and that's all I base that answer on as well. In my lifetime, it's been this. It, it, so I'm going to say Democratic, but that's as far as that analysis would go for me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And it's, it's um, you know, I, it's, it's, I, I think that, that um, you know, when you look at, at the Clinton administration uh, specifically, they, I mean, they were way, based on the market returns and it was a higher capital gains rate, but based on the, the long-term and short-term capital gains taxes they were receiving, they were t able to totally wipe out budget deficits. You know, I mean, the market was that strong. And, and so um, I know Alan Greenspan in his book, The Age of Turbulence, talks about it a lot, saying it was just it was, all of a sudden we had all this money uh, and, and really didn't know what to do with it. And then, of course, we, we came up with the long-term uh, capital management failure, yep. which undid a lot of it. I think the one thing that we can have certainty about here is that some of those tax laws put into play through Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they have a horizon. Like there's a firm date that's yeah. that's active, that's in law. And until that changes, that's the course. Um, and I just remember post-Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, even the tax pros, if you were to listen in to some of their discussions, trying to sort all of it out, um, there's just a whole lot of, a lot of confusion. How is this going to work? How does this all come together? I mean, there was a whole bunch of issues right off the bat with, you know, how are we accounting for this, that, and the other thing? And it, you know, little volatility, it, it smooths out over time. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and so much of that is linked in in the, in my plan. Um, it's funding for things 15 years down the road. Over the next 20 years, my plan, will. Be, when have we ever gotten to year five in some of that stuff? You yeah, know, yeah. it's out the window with the next uh, with the next swing uh, in in power. But it's constantly talked about how much is going to be raised over the next twenty or thirty years. I, I just like, well, all right, we'll wait. But to me, again, yeah. it's just all politicking. It's a valid point. 
you know, and, and uh, you can't because historically and into one of your previous points, they just don't ever do what they say they're going to do. You know, so it, the truth is always going to lie somewhere in between the two of them um, and, and uh, usually not as good as we ever think it's going to be, but also not as bad as we ever think. It's yeah, gonna be. that's a good point. So, Brendan, when you share those stats with some of your clients that you've been having discussions with, um, does that put them at, at some ease? Just knowing that, that you know, Republican in, in office, Democrats in office, we're still looking at something that, that we're going to adapt to, but it could be beneficial either way if we handle it correctly. Yeah, my, my well-tempered people, for sure, but some of them are just like, <laughs> oh, well, this— this time is so much different. I mean, we're just we're certain for doom and and it's on both sides. I mean, I've, I've got people who, who feel very strongly uh, for and against uh, President Trump. Um, and, and so it, I, I can tell you that that in the many years that I've done this, this election, even more so than last time, this election was was extremely visceral for people. Um, and I I had people on both sides saying depending on who won and who lost every cent was coming out of the market um and i haven't heard from any of those people you know uh, and so uh, I'm, I, I'm assuming that cooler heads have prevailed brennan those are the same people moving to canada as well you know yeah and, and there's just a lot of that you know and, and I, I think the other the other piece of this that we're, we we have to focus on as well is is the uh you know, the news from Pfizer uh, and, and other companies, I think, are finally starting to kind of come through uh, with some of these vaccines uh, on, on the coronavirus. And, yep. you know, the market's trying to understand you know, when when can we get that adjustment back to some semblance of normality uh, and how long will it take? So we saw the news on, on 60 Minutes for, for Pfizer kind of releasing their results. Uh, and we saw an immediate shot up on, on it, interestingly, the down the S&P really moved up. Um, and the NASDAQ didn't really move that much at all. And, I, I, you know, there's a million reasons for that, which will take too long to describe right now. Um, but then that kind of dissipated as people went from the euphoria of, OK, well, we're, we're all going to survive uh, to it's going to take a long time to scale this stuff up. Uh, we still don't know. You know, we, we've got 90 percent effectiveness, but we still don't know whether, you know, it's really that safe. Um, and, and so there's still a lot of unknown. So the market started to temper that me messaging a little bit. But it's good news. You know, it means that we're, you know, we're a lot closer to where we were uh, before COVID than we were in March. You know, where, where there's just we, we, there's a lot of a lot of work that's been done uh, to, to help impact that positively. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like the market's just been doing a bunch of double takes, you know. Oh, we have this new vaccine. That's awesome. Oh, wait, that means we're probably not going to get a second round of stimulus. That's bad. <laughs> Just like yo-yo. I think you're forth. still, yeah, you're still going to get, I mean, you're not going to get to the level of the PPP, um, but you're, you're going to get stimulus checks. Uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't, it's going to take too long and we're, it's not going to deal with this second wave that we're going through now. Uh, really what I think the vaccine is going to allow us to do is to not worry about next season. Yeah. You know, this we're we're too far into this season already, and it's we're we're starting to see. I mean, in the state of Rhode Island, uh, I, I'm going to utter words that I never thought I'd say in my entire life. Uh, we have a government curfew, you know, and it's just it it feels so bizarre that we're we're in the midst of this, but you know, things are going the wrong way badly, um, and and so it's just not none of the therapeutics or the vaccines are going to get here in time uh, to kind of deal with what we're going through now. But it's a good news, right? So the market's the market's you know forward looking and, and tends to try to predict future activity, uh, and so I think it's going to respond pretty favorably to that stuff. Mm -hmm.
All right, guys. We kind of mentioned Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a little bit in the previous segment, but one particular area I wanted to focus on because I had a lot of students ask me about this uh, this cycle, so it's definitely on the forefront of uh, students' minds, and it's also just something that's, you know, something that the average advisor is going to run into on a day-to-day basis anyways if you have enough clients is – uh, dealing with you know inherited IRAs and stretch IRAs and designated beneficiaries because uh, it's the, some laws around those recently changed and uh, I just want to kind of talk about that in a little bit more detail because I think it's it's worth a refresher for everyone to hear about. Yeah, we had talked about that. Gosh, Jerry, January maybe February. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, about some other things going on in in the Secure Act as well, but I think we. The, the questions that we're getting really revolve around the inherited uh, IRA or qualified plan account. I mean, one of the questions is, does it apply to both? Because uh, all anyone was hearing about was the IRAs, but it does apply to both. Yeah, that that wasn't very clear. That's something we cleared up a few months ago because it wasn't super clear in the bill itself was, you know, does it only apply to 401ks? Does it only apply to, you know, IRAs? You know, how, how does this actually apply um, let, I, let's go over how it used to work, because I feel that's what is ingrained in a lot of people's minds, especially people who have been in the industry for a while, and they might not even necessarily, uh, you know, updated their knowledge base about this. But how did stretch IRAs used to work, Mike? They used to work, and, and I think, help me here, guys, I think it goes back as far as maybe the Pension Protection Act of, of 1986 or was it? Is it that far back? Or? Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, yeah yep, a long, yep, long yep, time. Yep, right. And um, prior to that, only um, only spouses really could could stretch over their lifetime on uh, on inherited IRA or qualified plan accounts. And then the law changed and allowed non-spouse beneficiary to ha- essentially make that same election. I mean, it's not identical because the the surviving spouse could choose to to be the owner. Uh, of the account, or they could choose to to be treated as the beneficiary. And yeah, and these these are basically the rules from 1986 to basically 2018. Yeah, is what yeah. So the before. and it really helped the non-spouse beneficiary, that adult child or someone else, to be able to take distributions on that inherited account over their life expectancy. Uh, it just working off of the government tables and then subtracting one from that life expectancy uh, each year. And so what would happen is the stretch piece of it came from then that adult child naming one of their children as the beneficiary of the account and so on and so on. So you could stretch the distributions of that IRA or qualified uh, plan account over many lifetimes uh, right. really spreading out the payment of that tax. And so the SECURE Act has come in and said, well, we're we're not going to do that anymore for the uh, non-spouses. Yeah. And, and Adam, can you kind of get into like why the IRS doesn't like stretch IRAs, why it's why it's bad <laughs> for the IRS's bottom line? <laughs> um, tax? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has something to do with that. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know that there's much more explanation, guys. Do you do you have any other thoughts on that? 
Well, yeah, it's just, I mean, the whole purpose of RMDs is to force this income stream to be taxed because otherwise people would just leave the money in the IRA forever. You know, if they don't right. need, if they didn't need the money, they would just leave or it in all this of ta- the money or all the money. Yeah, it would just yeah. be in this tax deferred account forever and the IRS would never, ever get a chance to tax it. Or, you know, the really smart individuals would wait for a favorable tax law to come around and then take the withdrawals from the IRA. So the whole point of RMDs and why they exist in the first place is to just force that money back into the tax revenue stream. And the stretch IRA was probably the most effective way to really delay that almost indefinitely because, you know, if you put your beneficiary as someone young enough and they stretch it over their life expectancy... You know, those RMD payments are going to be tiny if their if their life expectancy is long enough. Yeah. The, the, the other thing that the RMDs do is, is it gives the IRS predictable revenues as opposed to unpredictable revenues. Mm-hmm. Right. So it helps them. It helps them with their budgeting. True. Um, so, yeah. So that's just why, you know, a lot of students will ask, like, why does the IRS even care what I do with my money? It's like, well, they care because part of that money is their money. Yeah. As they see, yeah, caring is sharing, right? So we want to look at it, yeah. And, and yeah. it needs to yeah. be tagged yeah. to some funding goal. <laughs> Here's where we get the yeah. money for there that. You go. Like, it's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, hey, if we change this to drain it in 10, then that'll fund this, 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 this. Done. Right. We got it. Yeah, right. Hooray. You'll finally get, to, right. finally get to infrastructure week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so... So that's what happens in 2018. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act includes a, a section on uh, stretch IRAs. Or no, I'm sorry, it was it's the Secure Act, right? I'm I'm blanking. Yeah, Secure Act. Yep. 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 Yeah, the Secure Act, uh, which was uh, uh, not 2018, but more recently. Uh, so Secure Act comes into play and basically limits the stretch IRA down to only 10 years. Uh, but there are some exceptions, though, right, Mike? Sure. Um, it, yeah, for anyone who is not part of the the exception group or the eligible designated beneficiary, EDB, that's the, the key term. So the spouse, nothing changes for the spouse. The spouse can still treat the IRA as their own uh, or they can be the beneficiary and stretch, uh, you know, over their lifetime. And then there's three other possibilities in this bill and, and um, other eligible designated beneficiaries are minor children of the uh, of the account owner uh, people with disabilities or chronic uh, illness and then the last quarter um, the, the the last section is people less than 10 years younger than the decedent which essentially means same gen- generation is how I look at that those other three groups aside from the um, spouse they too may stretch uh, the payments based on their life expectancy, just like it has been um, in in the past. Anyone else but, has to uh, empty it within ten years. It, but Mike, isn't there grandfathering? Yeah, if they had, if they had already if started. Eligible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're talking yeah. about accounts inherited now. If they were already on yeah, RMDs okay. from before, that's all grandfathered. Yeah. So, Mike, just to be clear, that joint and survivor table that people would use if uh married couple with more than 10 years so that still can get that stretch treatment if the if i'm following you you have a named individual beneficiary yep. mm-hmm. that's within 10 years of the same okay. age as the decedent they can use 
the their own life expectancy Got it. Uh, for those for those payouts. So at first, all of the press, understandably so, was that it's taken away and and it's no one has the ability right. to, to stretch. And that wasn't quite the case. And there's going to be a lot of scenarios uh, where we're dealing with one of these other um, eligible designated beneficiaries. Now, the interesting thing for the minor, minor child is it's only to age of majority. Yes. They can only so they can stretch till, till then. Wow. And then they've got... Uh, then they've got 10 that. years. Um, another interesting twist with this is um, only one such eligible uh, beneficiary designation will be allowed. So the surviving spouse would, would have the ability to stretch. But even if that surviving spouse names a person that fits one of those other three categories as their beneficiary, they do not they get to stretch. They're on the 10-year drain uh, from day one. So yep. it eliminates that multi-generational y- yes. that we had only, for a long time. Only one level of exemptions. Even if you do an exempted person for your beneficiary, it doesn't count. Yeah. So this is a huge um, need and opportunity for financial planners to get back into this. And, and review these beneficiary designations and explain what this means. And, it, and it's not just for the IRAs, but, but qualified plan accounts uh, as well. So there's great opportunity here to, to get back uh, in touch and, and, and maybe expand one's business by teaching uh, what these new rules mean. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I, when I had clients, that was the easiest phone call to make. It's like, Hey, how's it going? Hey, you don't have beneficiaries on your IRA. You should probably schedule a meeting to talk about that because it's pretty important. Oh, yeah, I definitely want to get that taken care of. Let's schedule a meeting right away. You know, <laughs> or they've seen an article, you know, with with bad information in it, you know, that this wrecks right. everybody's estate plan. I mean, I've seen headlines <laughs> for that. And it just well, just just a second here. Let's talk about it. But anytime the planner has a chance to educate. The client, I think good. That's good news for the planner. Yep. So just yeah, and, and always better better to hear from it from you than have them source it themselves and bring it to you. You know, so it's it's good to be proactive with this and get out ahead of it. Because to Mike's point, like this is this is I've seen these headlines in in uh, you know Fox News, in CNBC, in in other articles that are not necessarily industry specific, um, and and you know you got to know what your clients are reading. There's a lot of bad information, or, and and there's yeah. there's some that's just incredibly incomplete, that could lead right, yeah. you know an unknowing person to make a poor decision based on right. incomplete information. Yep, and that's that's really what I ran into with a lot of the students is a lot of them are reading these articles that just say stretch IRAs are gone forever, and then they just like yeah. they leave it at yeah. that and they don't talk about any of the exceptions or anything like that. And your previous estate plan is out the window. Yes. Um, so, and, and I think, um, there will be a reason to review the estates, but I think it'll be maybe some of these changes. I, I it wouldn't surprise me if the lifetime exemption goes back to a, uh, you know, a previous a, level, a things like number. that. Yeah. But I don't think the stretch IRA piece, uh, crashes one's previous estate plan. It just needs to perhaps be adjusted somewhat. 
And I, th I think, guys, you can tell me if you've seen anything on this, but I've gotten a few questions about, well, what about that five-year payout? And oh, from yeah. what I can tell, it looks to me that if there is not a designated beneficiary, um, and, and I'm not just speaking of eligible uh, designated beneficiary, but if there is not a party that qualifies as a designated beneficiary, like not naming a beneficiary at all, or yep, naming the estate as the beneficiary, I think that five-year five-year distribution requirement still stands. But I would expect maybe the IRS will give some direction on that because I don't think that the Secure Act directly addressed that instance of a uh, not having a designated beneficiary at all. Uh, and in that case, I think it would still be drain it in five years like it's always been. Yeah, right. I agree with that. Yeah. So just to kind of give the cliff notes for people following along because we threw a lot at you. Uh, stretch IRAs are gone except uh, the spouse can still take a stretch IRA or they can accept it as their own IRA and basically merge it with their own assets. Uh, and then the exceptions are a, uh, you know, child, a minor child, but that's only until they turn 21. Once they turn 21, they're then on the 10 year plan. Uh, and then the other exceptions are a uh, disabled or chronically ill person uh, or a uh, individual who is not ten years young, not more than ten years younger than the original IRA owner. Yeah, and that was in Those. none of the early headlines, or even in a lot of the early um, articles. This has interesting implications for the Roth environment, um, particularly the spouse being able to um, become the owner of the Roth IRA, which then would not require any lifetime distributions right if they choose right. to be the owner so in that context it seems to me that that spouse who treated it as their own could name one of those categories those eligible designated beneficiaries and that person could stretch that's my take on it i don't know how you guys feel about it but if they choose so, to call like, it their own from a practice standpoint what about what about converting a traditional to a roth to take advantage of that I think the IRS is fine with that because when you convert it, you're paying taxes at that time. Yeah, right. I so, mean, that's big dollars if we're if we're rolling out, um, right? You know, qualified yeah. plan distributions. Um, but I think it would apply, don't you? That yeah, if I did this, if, if I, I, I did I haven't this, thought about it until you just brought that up. So yeah, I would imagine it would. But yeah, I I, I see that as how it, how it works. You know, the IRS is. You know, fine with you doing that since you're doing just basically a lump sum tax payment to them when you do that conversion. Yeah, on sizable accounts, that's I mean that's huge. <laughs> um, For sure. Yeah, but I mean, but it could look like a pretty good deal if taxes go higher in the future. Right. It's true. Yeah, if you're predicting tax brackets yeah. to go up, you know, might not be a bad strategy. I'd yeah, be interested to see how that's been uh, from from the client side if if planners are seeing upticks in uh, backdoor conversions. Uh, traditional to Roth, just on on the heels of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, I'm certainly not in my practice. I'm not hearing a lot about it from other people. Yeah. Um, Speaking of IRAs and congr congressional decisions, though, I actually heard on uh, the November exam that 
Uh, students got a lot of questions on uh, QCDs, qualified charitable distributions from IRAs. I know we didn't really pre-discuss this, uh, but that's also kind of a, another piece that uh, has to do with you know IRAs, RMDs, and uh, and Congress. Uh, for people who don't know, QCDs are basically every year Congress votes uh, to allow it or not, but you can actually donate your RMD directly from your IRA to charity and get a charitable uh, deduction for it. And I'm a bit... Well, fiz- you, you, I don't know if Sorry. you technically get a deduction... Well, yeah. it should uh, offset the, the, the tax implications. Yeah, it never the, shows uh, up as income. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah, but it cancels it out. Yes, yeah, no, that is a good clarification on that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's another thing uh, people should be aware of because it seems to be a, uh, a new focus of the CFP board. Yeah, and that, what, yeah. unlike the, uh, the 72... For RMDs, that age has stayed the same for QCDs. It's still 70 and a half. Yeah, you're right. That's actually oh, a good point. I didn't even think of that. I'd, that's right. I didn't yeah. even realize. Yeah. Wow, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that didn't move. It's, that's one of those things. I don't know if it was intentional or they... That feels like an overlook to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can, I, I can tell you that that I don't, you know, in, in uh, from a practice standpoint, I, I still, if someone were to ask me today, what's the, what's the RMD age, I guarantee you I would answer 70 and a half. Like it, it uh, just hasn't it's been yeah. 70 and a half for so long. It's just it's hard to make that transition to 72. So that's actually a, a great point, Adam. Yep. So good. Good. I mean, all good points. Yeah. You know, IRAs are important. They're they they're integral to, you know, people's retirement plans. And Congress loves getting their hands on IRAs and kind of shaping the clay how they want it to be. So just more stuff to kind of be aware of and be on the yeah. lookout for. Hey, one other thing. Um if if a trust is named as the beneficiary, uh, those need to be reviewed as well. I'm I'm not a big trust expert by any means, but um, I think it depends on who who is named as the beneficiary of the trust, and whether they see that as a conduit trust or an accumulation trust, could impact whether it's whether those beneficiaries could stretch or not it might be uh it might be subject to the 10-year drain so i think just if you have clients that have named trusts as beneficiaries on iras and qualified plan accounts they probably should review all of that to see where it stands with secure act and i think from a practice standpoint it's just it's just a good idea because the beneficiary things with beneficiaries and in whether or not someone was named or should have been named, those are the things that can end up in, in arbitrations and they can get you, you know, they can create problems. So always good practice to be as changes like we've seen with the SECURE Act come in or if, if it's just been a little while, review those beneficiaries. Make sure that, you know, people are, are naming people that they intend to and it's not something that, that's changed that they just haven't uh, documented with you. Uh, it's really an important thing to do. <laughs> Right, guys, we have a revisited question of the episode. Uh, we wanted to kind of cover this again because we covered this on an episode maybe six months, maybe eight months ago, maybe even longer than that. But it has since become out of date with uh, some changes. And that is the kitty tax. Everyone's favorite topic. Good old kitty tax. Kitty tax change with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And then with the Secure Act, they said, you know what? That wasn't a great change. We're going to revert it back to the way it was before. <laughs> so what is old is new again. 
Uh, so we just kind of wanted to clear some up because the old kitty tax, while might result in some lower taxes for people, was much more confusing to figure out. I did like the newer kitty tax. It was nice and simple. Uh, yep. Old old kitty tax has some some hang ups in it. So let's do a question of the episode uh, on the kitty tax and see if we can kind of clear some things up for people. So I have for the question here, you have a client uh, who has a minor child with a UTMA that throws off three thousand dollars of unearned income this year. What is their kitty tax bill going to be? What do you guys think? Well, first thing I always do with questions like that in situations like that, just double check your details, um, as is the case really with any tax type question. We just want to make sure, I know they say minor in this case, but there are some ages that we need to keep an eye out for. Uh, specifically, is that child 18 or under? Um, or are they you know, up to 24 if they're a full-time student? If they have, if they're one of those, we check the box on that. Uh, then the next figure we're going to keep an eye out for is two, $2,200 is something that's going to come to mind uh, because the kitty tax rules are going to going to kick in if that unearned income exceeds that number. And in this case, it does. Uh, common to see this in a custodial account, right, where where assets have been shifted, they could potentially generate some income, uh, but there is that threshold. And this is another one of those rules and guidelines that was put in place with the IRS to ensure that they're getting their fair share. Um, it can't, you can't dump all the assets into the child's account as a tax avoidance strategy. Uh, it can be to an extent, right? Uh, but 2,200 and unearned. Uh, where do we go from there, guys? We start separating it out and uh, apply the, um, the the first 1100 uh, is uh, is exempt, so there's no uh, no tax on that. And then the next 1100 is taxed at the child's um, marginal bracket rate. And in you know all the examples we see, that's you know typically 10 percent. I see the biggest confusion with that second 1100 mm-hmm. and. We were talking about this b- before the show where like you'll say something and then the entire room of 10 students will say something else. And you begin <laughs> thinking it's like, oh, man, am I wrong? Am I getting this wrong here? Because there's just so much wrong information out there and these students are reading it. And I just like it, it ends up being very confusing with that marginal tax bra- uh, bracket. About. And that happened on the CFP candidate forum board where one person jumped in with the wrong answer and then it just snowballed from there <laughs> and it got worse <laughs> as as right. it stayed on the board yeah a lot of different yeah, interpretations I, <laughs> that are out yeah, there it, <laughs> there are a lot of practice questions out there which i feel uh lends itself to this confusion where you know it doesn't explicitly say it but it'll just say like oh that their marginal tax bracket zero or the marginal tax brackets 10%. And it doesn't necessarily explain why it's that case. Like it doesn't give you the information showing why they're in that marginal tax bracket. And people end up just applying that to all situations going forward. And that really throws them off. It's a lot more complicated, I think, in real practice. Um, you know, like Adam said, you have to make certain they fit these other definitions and meet these other requirements. Uh, and then you get in 
real life there could be different brackets in play for test purposes you know we're looking at 10 percent on that second 1100 and they're going to have to give us the parent marginal bracket to apply that to the excess what, what do we have in this eight hundred dollars yep that's going to be uh taxed at the parents uh highest marginal rate in real life that can become more complicated based on the character of the of the income and whether the parent wants to claim the dependent's income on their return, but they don't go there in, in exam land. It's yeah. but we need to know in exam land that what happens above twenty two hundred. Uh, that's the central testing issue. Yeah. So for our defaults, just to try and make a complicated subject uh, simple. You know, first eleven hundreds tax free. Second eleven hundred is at the child's tax bracket, which almost always is going to be 10% as far as test questions go. Yeah. You know, 10% is the default we should use. Sometimes they use 0%, and it's not always clear on that, and that is annoying. I do get that, but the default you should go for is 10%, and then anything above that first and second 1100 so anything over 2200 you're doing the parent's marginal tax bracket. Yeah, understand that part first, and, and segmenting out, how much, if any, of this unearned income is going to be subject at the to tax at the parent rate? That sets you up to then uh, handle a more complex scenario, which we won't get into today. But when there's also earned income uh, right. by, by that child, yeah, we might have to do a whole uh, episode segment yeah. on uh, or, or, or a mini bite, yeah, mini bite video. Yeah. We'll we'll do on that. But if you understand that first part, it makes the earned income scenario. Uh, even easier. And by the way, have you ever seen a faster reversal on something? This guy, know, right? That's no. called my big money donors started calling, and they are not happy with this <laughs> at all. Yeah. Oh, and I wonder exactly if this is happened. this is another area that I think might be ripe for change again. Yeah, if, yeah. If, the, if we do get a new administration, right? Because kitty tax, you're, you're typically talking about relatively well-off people, and. Um, I think it's just it, it's it's certainly something that I think will be likely reviewed. I think any of the things in, in the short run, I know I, I, I joked earlier about all this, but um, I think that's where you'll see short run tweaking could be really where it's targeting the uh, the much higher income. Um, I, you, you know, where we get back to lower lifetime exemptions on uh, exclusions on estates, we uh, we might see some bracket tweaking. Uh, where the biggest capital changes are, yep, capital gains, kitty tax. I can see that happening sooner rather than later at the very top uh, incomes being impacted. I I wouldn't be surprised if they completely got rid of the lifetime exemption because I know that's been uh, talked about. Here's a, a, a fun kitty tax factoid. Uh, if you have if you're subject to kitty tax you have a, you have a child that meets that definition of a qualifying child a dependent and they have unearned income in a given year that is above that $2200 threshold that this actually impacts your ability to use the refundable portion of your AOC credit um, as well that's actually just gets completely grayed out so it's now a non-refundable credit like you're that's that's null and void um, it came to mind because I know we discussed that last uh, last get together. Last time, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is some yeah tie between the two, which was surprising for me to, so, to read about. So, so if a if a taxpayer's re 
if, if they are subject to kitty tax, then the refundable part of AOTC yeah. would go away. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think I ever knew that. I, w- I wonder how many times that actually comes up because it would seem – I wonder how often that comes up. It is interesting. Yeah, uh, just just to also to calibrate students on this. So uh, I'm in the process of, of working toward my EA marks, which goes way deeper into tax stuff than a CFP exam by a large margin. And I was watching what a video. What does stand for? Uh, enrolled agent. So you get to uh, oh, pre- yeah, 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 prepare yeah. taxes. Yep. You get to represent the client in front of the IRS. And uh, the the instructor was talking about about situations where there's earned income and unearned income with potential kitty tax exposure. And she said, you know, you could take a look at the pubs. It's it's publication 929, uh, but really rely on the software. <laughs> so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's how people that are, are tax pros are getting are getting coached on this. Uh, so just, just so you don't feel that confused. Go, I mean, that's what the pros are saying. Use the, you, you, use the machine. Go, go, <laughs> the, go the into HR. The, the software didn't work during the uh, 2018 uh, tax, tax and job acts. My accountant who uses the software looked at me and said, your estimates are just basically a guess. I have no <laughs> idea if these are right or wrong. But the software didn't know what to do because it, it just wasn't – they didn't have time to update yeah. it. Make sure your E&O is paid up, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 right? That, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. this would be another good area for Brendan <laughs> – <laughs> to, to challenge yeah. he's got uh I, uh your daughter's gonna be starting college or has uh and my my son my son's a freshman in high school and my daughter's in sixth grade so okay so you still have a, a ways to go but i i was hoping you would challenge this and claim both uh <laughs> just yeah, see what happens yeah we really yeah. need you to get some definitive uh answers on these things so but we'll have well, mike to mike years, is just is likely to be a lot of change so i we'll see Brandon, I'm gonna Mike, have Mike to... is just our yeah. Mike has just already made up a plaque of uh, Flaherty versus the, the United yeah. States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he just really wants to give yeah. you that. Yeah, I want to know somebody really Look, I'm famous. famous. Yeah, I'm famous. <laughs> just make sure you come visit me in Alcatraz. <laughs> <laughs> no famous like tax off rate famous. That's yeah. right. <laughs> That's how they finally got Al Capone, according to the historical uh, tax evasion. Uh, uh, yeah, with with the untouchables. Ed, Ed O'Hare was Al Capone's uh, accountant who uh, turned yeah. turned tail on him. Yeah, but isn't it interesting as you you look at this historical stuff and and the, you know Brendan came across that and that this became an interesting thing for us to be reading as well. The same way with the history of tax under administrations and. It, we once had it at 94% was the yeah, highest marginal, marginal bracket. Yeah, and, and capital gains bracket. And, and I don't think it went as as recent as I think, I want to say 1964 maybe. Yeah, I think it was LBJ. Seven, 70%, 71%. I, I, I think it was, it was, I'd have to look at the table again, but I think it went all the way to the 80s. Well, I was I was surprised as well at how 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 far into the the recent past it, it went, um, and it was in my lifetime. I was born in seventy four, so it was definitely within my lifetime. Yeah, and that's another area where you tend to categorize it based on political affiliation. That one party's for high tax and one party's for lower tax. But if you look at that breakdown, just like for the market yeah. breakdown, you're seeing you're seeing both. Uh, yeah. Where it's there's all marketing. Been increases you know, it's, and decreases. It just, it's, yeah. 
this is our message, but you know, listen, watch what I say and not what I do yeah. type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And taking that too, another really interesting uh, place to look. There was an article I read about this of, of last year about the pairings of fiscal and monetary policy uh, when there were different combinations where they were both easy, uh, where they were both tight, and then when you had a combination one way or the other. And it's, it's just interesting to see throughout history why people chose to do things, why you know maybe fiscal policy was going one way, monetary was going the other. Those are the really interesting uh, spots in history. I'll have to call up the, uh, the article. But yeah, I would love to get a copy of that, actually. But the uh, I mean, and going back to, to, to just the difference between I mean, the monetary policy is not meant to be implemented long term, right? Fiscal policy is monetary policy is not. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yet it, it tends to be. The old uh, 10 years of monetary policy we've had. <laughs> yes, the grand experiment. 12 years. 12 years now. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I find it all fascinating. But like I said, let's not be in a hurry to make really massive decisions based on any of that speculation of where things are going. But it's pretty right. interesting when something causes you to go back and read a little of this stuff. So and actually I, pay I could, attention. Yeah. I, I could hear you over uh, investing my account in uh, Bitcoin and gold. <laughs> what, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just saw an article where I forget how many billions in Bitcoin had been seized. How do you seize it? Like, <laughs> what's that look like? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good point. <laughs> Ch- change, the, change the password. On. <laughs> I mean, that would be something that would be an interesting episode because it, it, it remains. I mean, I understand the blockchain, but, but Bitcoin remains enigmatic to me. I, I just don't get it. Um, and I, I just I, I it clearly there's a market for it. Clearly, there's an appetite for it. Uh, it just to me, calling it a currency, it just doesn't do the three things that currencies are supposed to do. And uh, I just I, I cannot get my arms around it. I would love to actually do an episode on that. Uh, we, we can do a deep dive into Bitcoin. I got deeper into Bitcoin than I than I should have in, in years past. I've, I've yeah. come back to the surface. But uh, yeah, there's some there's some weird stuff with Bitcoin that we can talk yeah. about. That and Pokemon cards Let's, there, too. Cause <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Honestly, Pokemon <laughs> cards might be a better investment. <laughs> But we just found like, my son's pristine, pristine collection of Pokemon cards. So I'm like, well, there's some currency. Uh, yeah, that's worth something. There, that might be some money, Mike. You never know. Like I, I, I saw something on uh, uh, an article on uh, alternative investments and like first edition Pokemon cards. Some of them are still like thousands of dollars. So hundreds of pro- thousands of dollars. Wow. Hundreds yeah. Of th- I, 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 Unbelievable. I want to say it was. I, I'm gonna. I might. I, this, again, this is gonna show my age, but I, I think it was Machine Gun Kelly just paid a quarter of a million dollars for for one of the Pokemon cards. Wow. Oh my and god. Then he, <laughs> and then he he paid a, another amount of money. I, I'm not sure if it was Machine Gun Kelly, but he paid another amount of money for for an unopened pack and found another one that he just paid a quarter of a million dollars for. So, uh, so yeah, there are probably people with you know thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of just cardboard in their basements or attics that they don't baseball even realize. Cards. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, again, tangible assets, tangible yeah. assets. Lot, lots of lots of alternative investments out there that people don't think of. Like people think of like coin collectors or stamp collectors, but you know, there's huge markets in just like nostalgia basically video games, oh yeah pokemon cards and there's a market yeah. for anything somebody collects there's somebody else that collects it as well and yep. once sold a uh, nolan ryan rookie card for two thousand bucks and i and yeah. i thought 
that summer <laughs> that that card came out, how many of those I must have burned up in my spokes, you know? Yeah, it was worth yeah. it to make it sound like a motorcycle, yeah. though. So. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, that could have been my retirement and, right you know, there. That experience uh. is priceless. <laughs> could have had a real motorcycle, Mike. Yeah, really. Yeah. 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 <laughs> If uh, if people want to hear about it, maybe we'll do an episode in the future on uh, collectibles and kind of <laughs> yeah. alternative investments in collectibles because, you know, that is something I'm really into. <laughs> you know, there's some there's some uh, fun stuff out there to talk about. Well, we were excited to come across all these Pokemon, and so we'll see what the guys want to do with it. But they did a good job of protecting them. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well. I think that's a good place to sign off. Uh, make sure to check out our website, biffbytes.com, if you're looking for more great uh, videos and back episodes of the podcast. Uh, and all as always, you can always reach uh, you know any of us uh, through the school. So thanks for tuning in. See you all next month. Thank yeah, you, gents. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.